We grow when we give. We grow when we give. We grow when we give. Nosotros crecemos cuando damos. We grow when we give. We grow when we give. Welcome to ROG, Return on Generosity. I'm your host, Shannon Cassidy. This podcast celebrates generosity at work, not financial giving. Giving valuable time, mutual respect, alternative perspectives, and genuine collaboration. Our special guest today is Lori Labah. She joined ESPN in 2000 as Director of Affiliate Sales and Development and Operations. Today, Lori is the head of business operations team for the Walt Disney Company's platform distribution segment. Lori supports the development and distribution of products and services that create meaningful value for the company, its partners, and consumers. Lori also leads the creation of cross-functional business requirements for all new products, as well as oversight for all post-sales processes for content distribution across all platforms. In other words, a lot. Prior to this role, Lori led affiliate marketing and operations, and this is where we met. She was accountable for the marketing impact on the growth and success of the Disney and ESPN Media Network's businesses, including cable networks, broadband, video on demand, pay-per-view, and all emerging media businesses. Lori has completed many leadership development programs. She's a board member. She's an active mentor and always has been as long as I've known her. Serves on many diversity, equity, and inclusion executive councils, employee resource groups champion, and she's led culture development across the Walt Disney Company. Outside of work, Lori is an avid traveler, certified yoga instructor, and marathon runner. She lives in Connecticut with her husband, Sean, and looks forward to frequent visits with her son, daughter-in-law, and adorable granddaughter in Stockholm, Sweden. What I appreciate most about you, Lori, and this is a long list of things, is your humility. With the level of achievement and status that you have earned, you're always open to learning and sharing and discovering new ways of doing things. I am grateful for our partnership and our friendship. Welcome to ROG, Lori. Thank you, Shannon. It is... uh... Such a pleasure for me to be here with you today, but it's always a pleasure for me to spend time with you. So uh, it's like uh, having a cup of coffee with one of my best friends that I don't get to see all the time. So I'm sure we will have a delightful chat today. Uh, and and I I sort of cringe when people go through here are all the things that Lori's done. I so. Know. <laughs> it, it makes me a bit embarrassed to hear all that. Um, mostly, I just want people to think I'm a kind, caring person. And if that was the only accomplishment I have, I would say success. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm so glad the universe brought us together uh, when we started the development of Cornerstones of Leadership many, many years ago, which I still think is one of the things I'm proudest of that I've been able to do for for others and also for my own growth and development. And you have been a professor for me of looking for gratitude, finding gratitude, finding peace and happiness in the midst of whatever the world is dishing up for you, which isn't always what we are expecting. Um, And I am eternally grateful for that from you and for your friendship. So hopefully other people also enjoy enjoy our conversation today. But if if they don't, you and I will have fun, and that's <laughs> that's the point anyway, right? Um, but you're right on that, Lori. Thank you so much for those kind words. But I think that you are known for kindness and being just a genuinely good person, right? Like You're going to get the real deal when you talk to Lori. You're going to get the truth. You're also going to get help. You know, you're going to get support. So I think your consistency is another reason why people trust you so much just why you're so lovable. Well, thank you. So so I know you wanted to sh- me to share a bit about my story. And actually in the category of learning, I got some feedback from um, Are You an Inclusive Leader survey tool that I took uh, a year and a half ago. And I've assumed, of course, I'm an inclusive leader. I'm going to get a perfect score on this assessment tool. And one of the things that the results actually showed me was you will do a fabulous job of getting people to tell you their story and you're very engaged and 
listen and people appreciate that you want to know about them, but you're a little more guarded when it comes to sharing your own story. And if you really want to up your inclusive game, you need to have the courage to tell people about you. And that doesn't mean, you know, it's bad or it's good, but people want to know who you are and understand a little bit better about your your background. Yeah. So I'll give you a little bit of background uh, and hopefully that will be interesting for people. I grew up in Massachusetts. I was the uh, first child of my parents who were very young when they had me. I think if I was 17 and 18 when I had a child, oh my goodness, but they were very young when they had me. And we lived very close to both of uh, my sets of grandparents. So I got to spend a decent amount of time with them. I have a younger brother and a younger sister. My sister and I are still very much in touch with each other. She's the lucky winner today. She's leaving for a two-week trip to Hawaii. So she's very excited about that. Um, but un- unfortunately, we are estranged from my brother. So we have not actually had much contact with him for, for quite a long time. My mom is still living. My dad passed away a few years ago and she she and my dad lived in Florida for quite a long time. So we didn't really have the closest of relationships with them being there. Uh, and she's now moved back to be closer to my sister, which is sometimes the bane of her existence, but it's nice to have her uh, nearby as she's getting older. And, you know, as 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 all of us age and our parents age, we develop a different kind of relationship with our parents than what we had growing up. Um, I was very close with my mom's mother, my grandmother, who taught me how to play all sorts of card games. Uh, She was a fabulous knitter. uh, So I learned how to knit and crochet from her. And she was my first and probably most prolific pen pal. And if anyone uh, knows me, you do. But if any other folks know me, I am still a fan of a handwritten note, uh, whether it's a card or a thank you note or just a thinking about you letter. And that is very much something that I attribute to my grandmother, who, when I was away at school, never ceased to send me something that would cheer up my day. I just think it's great to get a handwritten piece of something from somebody. Uh, emails are fun, but I have saved so many letters from from people that usually come unexpectedly. Uh, I am a, a huge still, I'm not keeping the post office going single-handedly, but I'm still a good customer of USPS. I was the first person in my family and actually the only person in my family to go to college. So... Um, I had to figure a lot of those things out for myself. While my parents were helpful, they didn't really have the experience to help me in knowing how to apply to school, which schools would make the most sense for me, um, how to pay for school. I did not come from a family with a lot of money, so a college education was going to be something I had to fund myself, and how was I going to be able to do that? Um, So I had people who were good guides, mentors, and helpers for me when I was in high school to figure out going to college. I ended up going to school not too far from where I was living. I went to Mount Holyoke College in uh, Western Massachusetts. And when I went to college, my goal was to study everything and anything that I was interested in that I hadn't been able to explore when I was in high school or that I just hadn't had an opportunity to uh, learn more about. One of those things was German. I love studying languages and studied French all through high school, um, but German wasn't offered as language. And so I was going to sign up to take German classes when I got to college. I also had the, I think, blessing, some people think curse, a core curriculum that the college required me to take as a liberal arts school. So I studied philosophy. I studied anthropology. I did math courses. I went to college assuming I was going to be a doctor. Pre-med lasted like a semester and a half. And then I realized that was probably not going to be the path for me. Uh, So I, and I was also uh, very interested in dance. So I had studied dance 
all through my childhood years. Uh, and Mount Holyoke had uh, an amazing dance program. So uh, as a concession to my parents who was, wanted to make sure I could have a job when I graduated from college, I was not a dance major, although I spent as much time as I could in the dance studio there. So that was a passion that I pursued. Uh, I ended up being a German major. Not surprising, German was a language I loved studying. I also continued to take French when I was in college. And I decided that I should have something businessy at a liberal arts school. So I uh, studied economics. And my goal when I was at school was to become an arts administrator. I was not talented enough to be a professional dancer, but I certainly knew enough to be able to be a good administrator. So I did an internship uh, the summer between my junior and senior years in, in college at the Connecticut Ballet in New Haven. Uh, that's where I met my husband. Uh, he did not become my husband for like six years, but that's where I met him. And uh, I worked with him at the Connecticut Ballet that summer, uh, went back to finish up at Mount Holyoke, I graduated, and then I spent the summer working at the Jacob's Pillow Dance Festival in Massachusetts, also with Sean, my husband, um, and then ended up moving to New Haven at maybe the worst economic time. Uh, it was in the early 80s. We were going through an oil crisis. For, for those of you old enough to remember that, gas was rationed. You could only fill up your car on certain days of the week. So it was a really bad time to be entering the job market. My first job out of school was a cashier at a card store, which was quite humbling. Uh, after this elite education and all of these debts that I'd incurred, I was selling cards in a card store, but I had to work to be able to pay my pay my student loans off. I also had to sort of support myself. So that was my job. Uh, and then I, through uh, interesting series of events, met a woman who worked for a local telecommunications company who sort of took me under her wing and helped me interview for jobs there. And that was when I got my first corporate job at a company called SNET, which basically provided telephone service at the time in Connecticut. And it was a fabulous place to work because their philosophy was, we're going to move you around based on your skills. So you could basically change jobs every two years and do anything you wanted to do if you had sort of the skills to do it. So I started out in a technology job, implementing payroll systems and learned all about collective bargaining agreements and benefits. Uh, then I moved to internal auditing and learned about systems and controls that are needed to make a company run. I did a stint in contract administration and learned how the importance of what you put in writing can have on your business. I was in strategic planning for a while and actually helped build the business case for them to get into the cable business. And stayed in that through uh, regulatory approval to get a cable business approved, actually worked to get a cable business up and running. Uh, we had about 30,000 customers. Uh, and then the company, our overall company was acquired. And the first thing they did, which was the right thing to do, was shut the cable business down. Think about what ATT U-verse is now or uh, Verizon Fios is today. We did that 20 years before those services were launched. So clearly they were good products, but they were just not financially viable yet at the time. And uh, so then I actually was there through the unwinding of the cable business and knew that if I was going to keep working for this company, I would have to move to Texas and be part of a very big business with a very different culture and knew that probably my next move was going to have to be somewhere else. Uh, in order for me to be happy uh, in the culture that I was in, but also I, my husband and son at the time weren't coming with me if I was going to Texas, so I had to find an alternate there. So that's um, probably way more background than you wanted about me, but that's uh, 
that's sort of my backstory there. No, it's wonderful. Oh my gosh, <laughs> thank you. And I've learned a lot. This is a, yeah. This is, yeah. I was like, oh, I didn't know this. Like, like your connection with your grandmother. That's just one that I'm sitting with because, you know, very often when people pass away, you think like, how can I honor them? Like, what are some of the things I learned from them that I could adapt into my own life? And just having been the recipient of your amazingly loving and thoughtful written correspondence that just every time I see your handwriting in my mailbox, I literally like light up. Everything has to stop. I just get to, you know, it's like me time. And, um, and that comes from her and that's just so beautiful. So thank you. And like, and then the trajectory of how you got into this business and just even, even hearing the highlight reel of just the kinds of things that you were responsible for, and then, you know, the listeners having heard your bio now, like you can, you can see how a lot of those things you're still responsible for, for sure. now in a big, big way. Yeah. But, um, you know, you were exposed to that. So I just think for those who are listening, who are maybe like in career transition or just figuring out like what's next for them, just to think like, it sounds like you were just willing to try a whole host of things and see if you liked them and if you found them interesting. Yeah, and and it was... It was such a great environment. And you don't know, when you're in your first job in the first company that you really work for, you just think the whole world is this way. And I was quite surprised to find out that that was not the case. And and you could have done the same job for 45 years. And there were people who did that in that company. If you didn't want to do other things, you didn't have to. But I am, um, I per- I am a person who needs to wear lots of different hats. Uh and, you know, the, the role that I'm in now is the perfect job for me. And it's been perfected to be the perfect job for me over time because no no day is the same, right? And I've got so many different aspects of the operations role and the, so many different things that the folks on my team work on that it, it, it's not, it can't be boring because there's always some different challenge. I love to do puzzles, you know, so I think about how my brain works. The, you know, someone once asked me, so did you know when you started your, you were going to be this big executive at the Walt Disney Company doing this kind of job. And many people have plans where they know exactly what they're going to do in their career and it's all mapped out. And I admire them for that, but that's, that that was not my life. I'm like, wow, okay, I can... I had a friend, Barb Waters, who used to say, your career is like monkey bread. And I don't know if you know what monkey bread is, but you just sort of roll up balls of dough and stick them together. And then you get this thing in the end. So much of my job is a ball of dough that I rolled. Like, I like this. I'm going to stick this on and stick this on. And uh, I've never been afraid to take on a challenge nobody else wanted to take on. And often operational jobs are assumed to take on those things that no one really else, no one else really wants to do, but take them on because I really like to see if, can we make things better? And you just can't take them on. You have to take them on and deliver on them. But that's been part of the fun of, I can see this, but I can see this over here. Maybe if we can bring these things together, then we'll have a better thing than those two things being separate. And you know, if I have a if I have a superpower, which sounds it's not like me, my uh, superpower. But if I have one, it would be I think being able to see the different parts of the puzzle, right? And that could be different work functions, that could be different roles, that could be different products. See the different parts of the puzzle, and and envision how they can be put together to create something. Uh, and help get people to see the vision. Uh, because sometimes it's like, wow, that's really out there. I don't know. I don't know how you're getting to that place. Because it might take a lot of steps to get to that place. But ultimately, to I, I can see how this puzzle, puzzle will work. And, you know, come along because you have a piece of the puzzle. Come along with your piece and see how we can put it together to make to make the picture, to make a mosaic, to make whatever it is we are going to be able to make when all these different pieces come together and are aligned, not like just jammed in. <laughs> to, they really have to fit, not not just force them together for the sake of 
forcing them together. Yes. And uh, something I've heard you say over the years is what doing what's right for the business. So I think, yes, you see all those puzzle pieces, you, you know, your talent, you kind of know like what could come together in order to make this thing happen. And it sounds like you're your mission is to do what's right for people and what's right for the business. Right. And I think if you, if you certainly in, in the work environment, but if you don't come at it first with what's right for the business, it's harder, right? I mean, especially if you're talking about bringing things together that are disparate under the umbrella of a company you don't want someone to think you're doing something because I'm building my personal empire or this is good for my team. Honestly, I don't really care if it's good for your team or not. I'm just going to do it for the sake of, of my team. If, if you, and I, and I think it's really important to, to even articulate what you're doing is coming from and through the perspective of what's the best thing for the business, even if that might mean means people always assume that's a positive outcome. That might mean the best thing for the business is this part of my team really should be aligned over here. So I'm going to give up, I'm going to give up those resources to to have them function better somewhere else. But if it's it it it, it takes some of the drama and emotion out of change if it's coming through the lens of what's best for the business. And that also can be something very personal. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, some years ago, when the person that I worked for left the building, like literally he called us at 10 o'clock and said, I'm leaving at noon and you're never going to see me again. Good luck to you in figuring out what the next thing in your career is. That was pretty shocking. Um, but, but I ended up reporting to someone who had been my peer, not an illogical move, uh, and he was a fabulous peer. He was not a fabulous leader. And I knew that if I mm-hmm. were going to continue to be able to work at the Walt Disney Company, I was going to need to find a different opportunity because leadership style, culture in the organization uh, did not align with how I wanted to be led and how I wanted to be allowed to lead um, the team of people that I was overseeing at the time. And while I did what I thought was the best thing for me in advocating for uh, myself and getting a different role in the company, I did ultimately do what I thought was the best thing for the business in aligning some resources that had been under me with another department that would free me up then to be aligned in a different place in the business where I would be able to address some challenges in that part of the business that I would be working in, um, but also selfishly keep me in the Walt Disney Company rather than thinking the only option for me would be to to leave the company mm-hmm. after you know 15 years of investment in me. How could I do the right thing for myself, but also the right thing for the business and find a place where I could continue to develop and grow and learn and be be appreciated for the kind of leader that I am. So best for the business doesn't necessarily have to mean what's not best for you too. Yes. Yes. It's not either or, right? Yes. It's like more of a like a spectrum or a, a way of finding an elegant solution to all of that. But the other thing I'm hearing in your example, Lori, is your clarity of what is good for you and what environment enables you to be that, all the strengths that we've talked about, or I, at least I've shared, um, and you know your superpowers, your experience, your interest in doing what's right for the business. Like You kind of know like that happens when... I am planted in this kind of soil, right? And and this is the how I can see myself growing, not just personally, although that's fulfilling, but in to to benefit others, the company, the people I lead. So I think it's just a re- key point in what you just shared around the the understanding of what you need to be your best. And sometimes that just like it's disruptive, and it's sometimes really uncomfortable. Uh, to make those changes, but it's necessary for you to be your best. That, that's right. And I think that's hard for, sometimes hard for us to acknowledge and accept, especially if if you've been working for a while. And also if you've got a team of people that you're leading, right? That 
I want to do what's best for my team seems to be the default, right? And that that might mean uh, if I if I leave this if I leave this job, which I'm now feeling isn't the best thing for me, what's going to happen to all these people I'm leaving behind? So I'm, I'm going to do I'm going to do the right thing, and I'm going to stick it out because I'm going to do what's best for my team. In this example I gave, it, when I was going to start advocating for myself to move to a different department, there were many moments where I actually had to sit down and have a chat with myself about, well, can you really do this? Because what about these 200 people who are relying on you as their leader? That's not fair to them if if you decide you're going to move on to something else. And um, one of our mutual friends, Molly West, who you know well and um, who uh, has gone through many learning journeys with both of us, she was one of my team members at the time. And she said to me, listen, you always tell us you have to do what's the right thing for you. And that also will reflect on doing the right thing for your team. And she said, if you decide to stay and not pursue something for you, do it because you think it's the right thing for you. But if you decide to stay because you think we need you to stay and you're doing it for us, don't do it because eventually you're going to become disheartened. You're going to become angry. You may start to resent us because you decided to stay for us instead of doing the right thing for you. So, you know, you got to do what you got to do what's right for you. And then the rest will follow. And it's so funny that Molly said that because I can remember saying exactly that thing to many other people, but taking your own advice sometimes is the hardest thing to do. Uh, but she was 100% right that that if you put other people's needs before your own consistently, like sometimes you have to do that, right? But, but, but if you make a call because you think that's the right thing for someone else and it's not the right thing for you, that's not going to lead to the best outcome. And, you know, there have been times in my life where I've had to make that call. And I'm not ever saying it's an easy thing to do or something that like, geez, I'm going to wake up today and make a really hard, hard call. It's going to be difficult for me in my life. But, but I have seen over my many years of working and living, because this isn't just a work thing, this is a life thing, doing it, embracing that is easier than the alternative of what you would tell the story you would tell in your head about what will happen what will happen if you don't do that that's something i try to help people understand that the story you tell in your own head about what could happen is likely yeah. way worse than what will happen in reality and, and and you know you always hear people say what's the worst that can happen i turn that around when i talk to people and say what's mm-hmm. the best that yes. can happen because if you focus on what's the worst that can happen then it then you're not going to do it. But what's the best thing that can happen? Well, if that happened, how would that go? And then then you can say, okay, if that was the best thing, and what's the worst yeah. thing that could happen? Is that really so bad if that was what the outcome would be? So that just changing that perspective a little bit of, well, the best thing that could happen is, in, in this case, I could wind up I could wind up in a role I'm going to be happy in and I can make sure the people I'm leaving behind, I've worked to be well positioned. Mm -hmm. But then what happens to them after that is up to them to control, right? Not up to me. So if you can identify what the best thing that could happen is and then work to make that happen, it's a lot easier than, well, the worst thing that could happen is this and I'm going to be paralyzed by that and do nothing. Oh my gosh, so powerful. What a what a shift in in how we can think about things and and you know I hear a lot of generosity in the example that you just shared you know I think that sometimes when we define generosity first we I I think we unfortunately always think of it as monetary so and in this podcast we're specifically talking about non monetary generosity which is what you're talking about so when you're thinking about what is best for the company and for me. Like that was also being generous to yourself, which is unfortunately, again, something that we don't like to talk about. But it's important for us to take care of ourselves so we can have resource to give to others, right? So I think it's not an either or, it's a both. So you're you're talking about it in a both. And then you're also thinking about how could I 
set up my team for success and then trust that they will take it from there, right? That they will take the next next thing. And then just thinking about like the investment that the company has made in you and you and them and like how do we find the smartest way for that to be sustained. Uh, so just there's a lot of, of really good, meaningful thoughtfulness in there that I, I don't know. I don't think that people always think about it like generosity, but but I do. And I think it's an important factor. And like when we're trying to be generous leaders, we are also responsible for taking care of ourselves and like, what do we need to be our best? And then others benefit from that in a variety of ways, right? Um, So when you think about generosity in your own career, Lori, like who or like what examples come to your mind about when you've experienced that in your career? So, so here's sort of the, the how'd you make the pivot from when you were working for the company that if you stayed, you're going to have to move to Texas to how do you get to the Walt Disney Company? And this is actually a story I told to someone last week. And I've been thinking about this question that I knew you were going to ask me for a while. And I'm like, ah, oh, you know, it's so hard to answer this. And then it became very apparent to me that here is the story. Here is the answer to your question. I knew I didn't want to move to Texas and I wanted to stay in the cable industry in some way. And uh, this was 24 years ago. So it was a little different time uh, in in using the internet to do things. Um, So I went to the CTAM directory that I happened to have a printed copy of. So if Vicki Lins hears this, you can, you know, she's had a piece of my success in getting to the Walt Disney Company. Not that Vicki was at CTAM then, but so I went to the directory and I looked at what businesses are in Connecticut. Uh, so at the time, E! Entertainment Television had a little tiny office in Hartford. Uh, obviously, there was ESPN in Bristol. Time Warner still was and still is based in Stanford. The Outdoor Life Network, which now after many iterations is NBC Sports or morphed into NBC Sports over time, had an office in Stanford, uh, more of a production facility. And the World Wrestling Federation was also based in Stanford. So those were the sort of the things in Connecticut. And then if you went to New York, there were many more options, but I wanted to just try to stay in in Connecticut. So so I went to the directory and I looked up who's in the directory in these companies in Connecticut. And there were, you know, six or seven people. And I I sent them all an email. Hi, you don't know. And I did not know a single one of them. You don't know me, but I'm, you know, trying to set up exploratory interviews I'm thinking about leaving the company I'm working for, which is not in the cable industry. So it's not like they would have even known my little tiny company um, or, or they might have known our little tiny cable company, but not the bigger company I worked for. And, and would you be willing to just talk to me? I'm not I'm not applying for a job. I'm not you know, I just want to start learning about the business because at that point I knew. I could probably do any job, Shannon, after all the, all the things I'd gotten exposed to. I had a finance background, I had customer service, I had right. regulatory, I had strategic planning, I had marketing. I, I mean, I had pretty much anything I could, I could find a job for. But I really needed to find a culture that would work for me because the culture of the acquiring company was bad. Like we went from being independent, entrepreneurial, move around, do a bunch of different things to basically being a very tiny satellite office and base a cog in a wheel. So I I couldn't work for a company where I'd be a cog in a wheel. So I needed to understand the culture and then make some decisions about the kind of job I would be pursuing. So six random emails out in the universe, what might happen? Well, one of those people actually within like an hour and a half responded to me. Uh, and it was a woman named Joan Wilson, who was part of local ad sales at ESPN. And she responded back and said, I'd be happy to talk to you. Love to tell you about what we do here. You know, so can you come in next week uh, for, you know, an hour and a half or so in Plainville, Connecticut? Now, at this point, I lived in Connecticut a long time. I had no idea where Plainville was. And so I thought, oh, Plainville, I thought ESPN was in Bristol. Well, I guess I'll find out a new part of the state. So I figured out how to get to Plainville um, by doing MapQuest because there was... <laughs> I was just going to say, 
<laughs> in my mind, it was an atlas in, in your car. There was no ways <laughs> or Google Maps at that time. Like, okay, I'll figure out how to get there. And I and I went in and met with her, and she was the kindest, loveliest person, Shannon. Uh, she was so generous with her time took the time to explain to me what her department did, what the broader affiliate sales and marketing team did that she was a part of, gave me a really good sense of what ESPN's culture was. And at the time, ESPN had about 250 employees. It was growing like gangbusters. And to put that in perspective, when I started, there were 2,500 employees at its peak, there were 8,000. So, you know, people were being added all the time at ESPN. And she said, we don't have enough people to do the work and you can raise your hand and take on new things. And I thought, this sounds great, right? This is the culture for me. I would not be bored. No one would shy away from, if I wanted to take on new things, they would let me do that. This sounds like a great yeah. a great place to work. And this woman is so lovely as she's representative of the people that work here. I would be happy working in this place. Uh, she even let me interview for a job that I was not even remotely qualified for, but you know, wanted to do this as practice and be happy to. Uh, I'd be happy to have you on my team if it if it worked out. So, at the end of our conversation, she said, "Here are the names of five people that I think would be good for you to talk to who do different things in the company. I will send them your resume." I will explain to them that you and I had had a conversation and I will encourage them to reach out to you. And I thought, wow, this is great. Uh, seems like a good place to work. If everyone I meet with keeps giving me five more names, eventually I will be in the right place at the right time for the right opportunity. None of the other people I emailed responded to me. So no, so of the six, Joan was the only one who responded. And then uh, she said, okay, so here's the five people I'm going to give your resume to and, you know, keep me posted on, on how things are going. So I thought, oh, this is yeah. great. Uh, one of those five people actually reached out to me and uh, I came in and interviewed. His name was Manish Jha. He's no longer, uh, Joan is, Joan left actually, Joan left ESPN shortly after I started there. Uh, she was doing commuting to Washington, D.C., to Bristol, which was a tough thing then. So so she actually left and, and retired. Um, but Manish called me in and said, you know, Joan, send me your resume and uh, would you come in and have a chat? And I thought, great, another person, five more names. So I went in and I interviewed with him. And we spent literally an hour and a half talking about our favorite books and it turns out we had an interest in the same somewhat obscure author, Italo Calvino. And we talked about the books and why we like these books. And it was a lovely conversation. Like if I'd met him at a cocktail party, like, wow, he's a great guy. So at the end of the conversation, I left no more names. <laughs> so like, wow, that was, that was a good chat, but that's not really helping me on my journey here. So... Uh, so I went back and I'm in the meantime, still doing my job. And a couple of weeks later, he said, uh, I'd like you to come back in. Would you mind coming in for another conversation? And I thought, okay, but I, I don't want to talk about books again for an hour and a half, but whatever. So I came in and uh, he said, so I have a job that I'd like to create for you. I'm looking for a successor for me on my team. And he had a job where you wore lots of different hats and I'm just trying to figure out how to do that. So are you willing to give me a little bit of time to come up with a job description? And, you know, this was January. Uh, and he said, so if you're willing to give me a little bit of time, I know you're, you're looking for other opportunities, but just don't accept anything before I come back to you. I go, okay, um, uh, no one else is responding to me, so <laughs> I got time. Uh, and, uh, and I thought, well, maybe some of the other four will respond nothing. So, so I, I said, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll wait and, and see, because I knew the culture would be when I would be happy. And he ended up hiring me, and I started in May. Sort of the rest is history. That is the one and only job I ever interviewed for in my 24-year career at the Walt Disney Company. I have had many iterations of jobs. 
in those 24 years. But that that was the that was the one that got me hired. And, you know, I started managing a small team of two people doing industry analysis, and that has morphed into the job that I have today. But there's a kernel of that job. Some of what I started doing is still part of my role today. So so this is a long answer to your generosity question, but but I do believe that there is karma in the universe, right? Would I have ended up at, at ESPN if Joan Wilson hadn't responded to me and invited me in and given me Manisha's name? Maybe, maybe, because clearly it was a good fit for the Walt Disney Company. You can see I've had much success over my time there. But, but her kindness to take that time with a total stranger, total stranger, paved the way for me to end up in a place where I can't say I've been, uh, you know, supremely happy every day for 24 years, but I've been pretty darn happy over 24 years in the career that I've had at the Walt Disney Company. And so, mm-hmm. so you said I work with ERGs. I'm a, I'm probably the biggest mentor at the Walt Disney Company. I, I have mentees that I've had for 20 years. And just like my grandmother is the one who instills in me the reason to write all these notes, Joan Wilson is foundational for me in anyone who needs help. I have to be helpful. I have to lend a hand. I have to listen. I have to engage with that person because that's what the universe did for me. And how can I help give back for what Joan did for me? And this, I'm I'm surprised it's making me so emotional, but it was a life changer. No question about it. Um, So here's, here's a, so, so all the people that I help, you can thank Joan Wilson for that. One of the people Mm -hmm. who was uh, the recipient of my universe response was my very own current manager, uh, Mr. Mr. Justin Connolly, who I think has been a guest for you on, on this podcast. Yes, episode 34. Yep. So you also know Justin to be an enormously kind, caring person. I'd like to think there's a part of the Justin Connolly leadership persona that is partly attributable to me because when Justin was graduating from Harvard Business School... He wanted to come back and work for the Walt Disney Company, uh, but didn't want to return to California where he had been working before he went to HBS. And we ended up interviewing uh, Justin and I for an open position that I had on my team. And he was also interviewing with the New York Times at at the same time about uh, a digital job. Uh, And through my... Kindness, my persuasiveness, my sales ability, Justin ended up accepting the role on my team uh, as the director of contract administration and worked with me uh, as, a, as a team member for a number of years and then uh, moved into the sales group and moved on to a number of other roles in the Walt Disney Company. And uh, it's interesting how the world evolves. And now actually, the when I made the decision to pivot out of the situation with the not great leader, the leader I ended up going to work with and for was Justin. So, you know, the world comes around full circle uh, to, uh, to, to show that you just never know when you are kind and generous with someone, how that might end up being something you, you yourself need down the road from that person. So, uh, that's my generosity story. I love that. Oh my gosh. And I'd never heard about Joan. So again, I'm learning so much. This is like the best episode for me too. Um, <laughs> but I really, there's so much in what you just said. Oh my gosh. But the point about Justin is, you know, when I started this podcast, I was really thinking about like, how could I give people exposure to some of the 
people that I've met, some of the lessons I've learned, and not just like textbook lessons, but leading by example kinds of lessons. And just having both of you on this podcast and sharing the and many of the other executives at the Walt Disney Company who have similar values, beliefs, um, intention of service, uh, really looking out for other people, very humble. Like that's something you and Justin have so much in common is that you make such a difference. And I love that you're still working together. You have found a way. But I just kind of want to go back to the Manish conversation about the books. And so for people listening that are like, wait, how did he know that he wanted to hire you and custom create a position for you after having had a conversation with you about something non-work related. So is there any, like a nugget there that you could pull apart? For yeah, our so so I, I actually asked him that question, yeah. uh, not to derail my getting the job, but after I started working, I was like, okay, so what was the book conversation all about? And he said, look, I had seen your resume. I knew that you could do any job that, that I would craft for you. And he had a job that required, you know, we did finance, we did the budgets. So many of the things that I had done in my prior job were were either needed or would be good ancillary skills for what what the role he wanted to create would would require. And he said, look, uh, so I knew you could do the job, but I didn't know if I would like you. (laughs) So he was very direct to like... Uh, we work a lot of hours. Um, we have a small team of people. There's a particular culture here. Uh, you know, people have can-do attitudes and they're very willing to jump in and get it done. And that, that, that's a lot of ESPN's culture to, you know, sort of the whole idea of being on a team and what do you do as, as a team player and how will you interact with the other people? And he said, no matter how smart you were and no matter how qualified you were, if I didn't think we could work together, not that we had to be best friends, but if I didn't think we could work together, it wouldn't be a good fit, right? Especially for for a role where I knew I was going to be potentially grooming you to be my successor down the road. And he said, quite candidly, I've never met anyone who'd read any of these books before. So that was really fascinating to me. But but Manish was also unique in that way that there's more to there's more to a human than what they're capable of doing on their resume. And he said, I also wanted to know that you had more to your life than just working. And that that's what I've also that that's also a good lesson I learned from him to be quite vocal with the people that you work with that you need to put boundaries in place. You need to, you need to live your life. You need to experience more than just working nonstop because to be a creative thinker, to be able to, you know, see the puzzles all over the pieces all over the place and be able to envision how you bring those pieces together. If you don't ever see anything but the work that's in front of you, you lack the perspective to think bigger than what the work in front of you actually shows. You know, so why did you become a yoga instructor? Actually, becoming a yoga instructor was one of the most beneficial things I've ever done as a leader. Because you have to you, you quickly understand the power of your words when you are standing in front of a room of people teaching them to do something especially with yoga like if you make a mistake put your foot behind your head like people will try to do that and might get injured right or, or or just being very deliberate with what you want people to understand from you. They don't need a 15-minute explanation for a yoga pose they're going to be in for 10 seconds, right? So how do you hone your ability to be a communicator to achieve maximum results in the minimum amount of time, right? So, So that actually was hugely helpful for me. And I thought about Manish then that, you don't really make the connection, but the things that you're doing in your life aren't separate from who you are when you're in the workplace. And, and you know, marathon running, 
you've run a marathon or anyone who's run anywhere, but long distances for sure. It's all about what you say in your head after a while, right? You know, nobody really wants to be that, you know, to be running for, for all those hours, but, but you don't give up. And why do you not give up? And how do you learn not to give up? And how do you learn to motivate yourself? And how do you learn to look at what's in front of you and make the best of the circumstances that you find? Those are all experiences that I've had outside of the workplace, but that are part and parcel of what I bring to the workplace as a leader. So in, I still love reading. I mean, the, so all those things you do, to, going back to, you know, the mosaic you're making with the pieces, your life is like that, right? Your life is made up of all these different pieces, and, and they're good experiences and the things that haven't been great experiences, they're also part of the pieces that make you who the person you are that shows up when you're in the office, right? So, so you know, I know we've done uh, assessment tools together, DISC, you know, do you show up the same way at work as you show up in your life? You hope so, because it's a lot of work to be showing up differently in the workplace than the way you're showing up in your life. That, you know, when you think about being inclusive and being able to be your authentic self and embracing how people actually show up when they show up, if you don't have a varied amount of experiences, and that doesn't mean you have to travel the world. I mean, you could never leave your neighborhood and still have varied experiences. If you don't have those it's much harder to appreciate what other people bring to the party because um, you can't really see them. Thank you, Lori. This is just so incredibly meaningful to me. Uh, so I just want to recap some of the takeaway tips that I've written down here that people can apply to their own life because you know they've got their own set of circumstances and their own journey that they're on. But I think a lot of the things that you shared are applicable. So even starting with your uh, appreciation for your roots, like where you came from, your family and and the people who taught you things that are really meaningful to you. You talked about knowing yourself, like understanding what you need and and even what your superpowers are. I think that's an important component. Um, the, The question of what's the best thing that can happen when we're confronted with a decision. So we can contemplate the worst thing that can, that can happen, but what could this enable? What's the best thing that can happen? Um, and then the seeking the culture where you can thrive. That was a through line. And a lot of the things that you shared was like, like you understood what environment you needed. And I think very often people look for like a job or a role or a, 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 t- a title, but for you to be really thoughtful about what kind of culture am I looking for? And, and for those in senior level positions, what kind of culture can I create? And then this whole bit about making the mosaic with the pieces of your life, like, and just continue to create that mosaic with all of the experiences yet to come, but to kind of put those puzzle pieces together of the things that you've already experienced and to see how beautiful that is. So thank you for being an essential piece of my life and just somebody I couldn't live without. Thank you so much, Lori. Oh, thank you, Shannon. I feel the same way. And maybe hopefully one person will watch our podcast, but if no one does, then we still had fun. (laughs) Thanks for listening to ROG, Return on Generosity podcast. Please help us grow by subscribing and reviewing us on your favorite podcast player. And for more information, visit bridgebetween.com. We grow when we give. We grow when we give. We grow when we give.